Thanks for joining us again at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, back again with Dr. Rupina Pirawal, pediatric infectious diseases physician from Saskatoon. In this episode, the Canadian Breakpoint invites Dr. Sarah Kahn, pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, to discuss infant feeding in the context of HIV. Dr. Pirawal. Hi, welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Sarah Khan, who is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University. She's the associate medical director for infection prevention and control with Hamilton Health Sciences. She completed her pediatrics residency and master's in health research methodology at McMaster and an ID fellowship and CTN postdoctoral fellowship in HIV at the Hospital for Sick Children. Her scholarly focus is in antimicrobial stewardship, infection control, and infant feeding in the HIV context. So thank you so much, Dr. Khan, for joining us today. And today we're going to be talking about a very important topic, which is regarding infant feeding in the HIV context, which as we just heard, uh, Dr. Khan is one of our experts um, in this field. And so before starting the podcast, we do want to give a disclosure that everything that we'll be discussing today will be solely for informational purposes only and not to coerce or promote an idea or product. Also, this topic is evolving, and when the consensus recommendations for infant feeding were established, CPARGE and other members of the medical community involved in these guidelines agreed that as new evidence emerges, there will be ongoing evaluation of these recommendations. So at this time, these recommendations are based on expert opinion and not specifically on evidence-based medicine. Also, depending on the jurisdiction that you're practicing in, these guidelines may vary. These guidelines are solely developed as a guidance for families who may have the option of infant feeding with breast milk as opposed to exclusive formula feeding. This assessment is based on a case-by-case assessment and requires the involvement of a physician who's familiar with risk assessment in HIV care. Exclusive formula feeding remains the preferred method of infant feeding in the context of HIV. However, today we're going to discuss the approach to counseling a family or mother or uh, mother of um, childbearing age for infants who are living or mothers who are living with HIV and would like to know the options of infant feeding. So thank you, Dr. Khan, for being here today and discussing such an important topic with us because for many years prior to this, we didn't have much guidance and a lot of our centers have been providing care for mothers with HIV but do not have uh, really the other expertise or really an approach to this situation. And I think it's coming up more and more. So without further ado, I do want to start by uh, just kind of discussing why these consensus recommendations or why do the committee members decide to come up with these consensus recommendations? If you can just speak a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks so much for for having me and and uh, discussing this topic. It's it's very near and dear to my heart, and I think it's because this conversation has really evolved out of uh, the realization that you know the community 
really had a lot of questions around this issue, but there was a lot of stigma about even talking about it in our clinical conversations. And so I think the committee had decided to come up with these recommendations really from a call from the community that we need more information, we need clarity on what is and isn't appropriate because many women may have delivered in different contexts and be counseled very differently in different settings. And then they arrive in our clinical settings here in Canada and are told potentially very different guidance. And I think until there's clarity and there's really fulsome discussions with the community and their respective providers, are we really sort of missing a big part of what's so important to women living with HIV in their mothering experience? So I think it sparked from a call from the community But I think it was a recognition on the provider side that we need to understand this issue better and fully unpack it. And then I think the last sort of element to this was aid service organizations also lacked the language, the resource and how to have a fulsome conversation because they're such an integral part of women in their pregnancy planning and their postpartum experience. And if all of these spaces aren't really places for this kind of dialogue to happen, you know, that begs the need for, you know, an in-depth and an evidence review. And, and I appreciate your intro to this podcast around its expert opinion, looking and leaning on the evidence we have to date. So I think that's sort of a, how I would summarize where and why this, this came to be. I'm probably one of those healthcare providers and community members that appreciate such guidelines coming out because we are facing questions uh, in regards to this. And, and, and you make a very valid point about, you know, where we have a lot of immigration to Canada. And so there's different practices. And I think, so a lot of these questions will come up. And so it's nice to have an approach. So I think before we start with the actual approach and kind of how and what context, how do we Uh, go about this for our listeners, because they may not be familiar with this. Can we just touch on some of the risk of transmission that we are are as known to us in regards to formula feeding versus breast milk? Yeah, that that's, I think, integral to this conversation, right? Because I think at the end of the day, that's what everybody wants to know. Well, what is the risk? And I think if we kind of take that step backwards, and we talk about vertical transmission in general, if you offer no interventions, you know, we talk about a 10% risk of in utero transmission, and then around 10 to 15% from delivery alone, given the, you know, sharing of secretions and blood um, crossing different borders. And then again, with no intervention, breastfeeding has an additional 10 to 15% risk. Now, obviously, we do so much to prevent that risk and bring that sort of number from 25% down to sort of, and I'll I'll land at sort of between 0.5 and 3%. And I'll get I'll break down those numbers a little bit more for you. So there have been a few systematic reviews, some commissioned by the WHO to look at, okay, forget in utero, forget delivery, what is the breast milk risk of transmission in a well-controlled mom with an undetectable viral load in pregnancy? And again, recognizing most of this data comes from low middle income contexts where breastfeeding is sort of part of what, what is part of the care for women living with HIV. The risk is quantified at depending on sort of what duration you cut off breastfeeding at in terms of six months or 12 or 18 months, anywhere between sort of 0.4 to 3%. Now, where and why is that sort of window so wide? Because we know that virologic monitoring that might be happening uh, may be different from study to study. We know that, you know, this is mostly done in a trial setting, which may differ in real world context. We know there are different ART regimens um, used in, in these different trials. There's different prophylaxis offered to infant or, or not at all. 
small, depending mm-hmm. on the trial. And so there, there's a range of what we, we describe as the risk. It, it's very much dependent on the duration of breastfeeding. And then there are, are ver- a variety of factors that could sort of cause a blip, if you will, in terms of the risk of transmission. And those are sort of higher risk scenarios we allude to in the guideline. But if, if you're sort of going to ask for a hard number, it's somewhere in that range, 0.5 to sort of 3%. And if you want a little more specifics, if we talk about the first four to six weeks, there's some data to suggest it's more like 0.7 to 1% per week. And then that risk drops off significantly to sort of 0.7% per month. And that's also partially related to breast milk composition in an early postpartum phase, colostrum versus sort of um, later phases of breast milk, including the form milk and hind milk. So there's so many variables to consider. That's why this data is limited by many of those factors. But that's the best we can get to in terms of quantifying, recognizing it's not quite the same risks we might see in our context with differences in monitoring. Okay. And and like we mentioned before, kind of depending on the jurisdiction you're practicing, there might be different medication, there's different approaches. And so, so those risks can vary. So in terms of when a family or a parent asks a prenatal physician or a, an obscene questions in regards to, you know, infant feeding options, can, can they use their own breast milk in the context of feeding, how would you approach this situation? And so what factors do you think that those physicians and those caregivers need to need to take into account? Yeah, thanks for this question. I think this is probably the most important thing that yeah. message that needs to kind of go out. And I think you highlighted a really good point. This is all about setting us up for success, setting everybody up for success. And so making sure these conversations happen as early as is reasonable in pregnancy and really with both the maternal and the pediatric providers that will be involved in this conversation, right? Because there are multiple players that are are part of, of, of setting this up for success, right? So I think that's kind of a priori what I would want, a key message I'd want to get out okay, so we've got all the people at the table and we're starting to have this conversation and we really want to have it in the depth that every woman should be counseled on to sort of help navigate this complicated decision. I think there's probably about sort of six key things that I, I we agreed as, as the group that we would really hope are part of these conversations. Okay. And one is that, that one we touched on already, you know, why is there a difference in guidelines in high versus low resource or low middle income contexts? Because I think a lot of women come to this table with sort of this do you guys in this context just not get that it's possible and like and and that we've heard that from women and I think that's a really important question that we sort of need to to bring to light that there's a reason why there are differences and it's because we're all sort of looking to the best outcome for mom and baby in the end right and most of the trials are based on HIV free infant survival and the recognition that there are a variety of causes of infant mortality in low middle income context and why breastfeeding is actually preferred because of the malnutrition, the dysentery, the challenges of getting potable water, right? And so explaining, I don't know if you have to go into AFAS criteria, accessible, feasible, affordable, safe, and sustainable, but really the point being, yes, you may have been counseled one way in one pregnancy, and this is the reason why it's different in low middle income context. And the reason why we suggest or recommend formula feeding for women living with HIV in high resource context is because it eliminates that risk of postpartum transmission. Not to say that's the only sort of way to go, but this is why there are differences. And that needs to be sort of laid plain a priority. Once once you've sort of been able to get through that part of the conversation, I think it's important to talk about, you know, 
okay, so what is the risk and why is there a risk of breastfeeding transmission if a woman is undetectable, right? Because I think that emerging conversation of U equals U for sexual transmission is so important and is such an important element of HIV education, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily apply in the breastfeeding context and explaining why that is. Because we know from some of the breast milk science that has been done that even a woman with an undetectable plasma viral load may have cell-associated virus. And cell-associated virus means those T cells, those white blood cells in breast milk that are such an important part of why breast milk is good for sort of the immune system of the infant is also why HIV transmission could be occurring because yes, antiretrovirals are effective and reduce cell-free virus, but they do not eliminate cell-associated virus. And because there's such an uh, important immune component a component of breast milk, those T cells are there and that those T cells can actually be activated through the process of lactation. And so again, those T cells can sort of be turned on and be producing more active HIV um, upon lactation and uh, upon ingestion by the infant. So explaining why virus can be in breast milk when it's not detectable in plasma, and then all the other elements that can further increase the immune response either in the breast component, like mastitis, blocked ducts, cracked nipples or or inflamed nipples, and similarly immune activation or mucosal inflammation in the baby. So oral thrush, HSV stomatitis, gastroenteritis, all of those, you know, infections that could happen to any baby that could further increase the risk of cell transmit, uh, cell associated virus transmission, or even cell free virus transmission into the infant's plasma component. And so I think just to sort of in as lay terms as are, as are possible. And I know I'm talking provider to provider here. So obviously different language is necessary. There's yes. a lot of really helpful resources I'm sure we'll chat about at the end that kind of explain this in, in a really sort of easy way for, for patients to understand as well. But I think guidelines and the science of transmission are sort of point one we really think are important to cover. The other key piece would be, you know, what are the types of infant feeding? So there's exclusive breastfeeding, exclusive formula feeding, and then there's mixed feeding. And sort of the general consensus that mixed feeding may actually be a further increased risk of transmission because of multiple antigenic exposures to baby and Mm -hmm. that increased sort of potential immune response you might see and and, and why mixed feeding should be avoided as much as possible in terms of if we are talking about breastfeeding potentially. I think the, the other sort of important element of that is really sort of walking through a woman walking through your patient around what it might look like if you formula feed and how you can, uh, you know, safely access formula. Most provinces, not all, have free formula for women living with HIV for a full year. And so making sure they know how to mix formula, how to safely clean bottles, like some of this stuff, we take it for granted. But, you know, women have voice that like, I didn't know what to do. I was just told this is your formula figure it out. And, right. and you know, whereas there's a lot more support for breastfeeding for the general population. So we should be offering similar degree of support for women that may choose to formula feed. And the right. other element I'd add around what it might look like is can we do lactation suppression? Will that help? Because you can take cabergoline, a medicine shortly after delivery, so you can kind of shut down breast milk production. So there's not that added element of Some women have described it as trauma that they're, you know, lactating, but they can't feed their infant. And that's, you know, a real issue that that we can address, like we can manage that for women. 
Yeah. And then also sort of reduction of engorgement and all the other sort of physiologic processes that happen in a woman that is not going on to breastfeed. So I think walking through what it can look like if you formula feed, yeah. and then similarly walking through what is essential that we have to have in place if you choose to breastfeed. And that would be the importance of talking about, we really need to ensure that you're going to be able to take your ART after delivery, because life gets busy after you have a baby, yes. right? We're not just talking about the, you know, the mental health component of this, yeah. but also like you're sleep, you're sleep deprived, like you're yeah. stressed out, you have a whole other human to be managing and your health, you know, is also critically important for baby's health, right? And so making sure women can continue on their, their ART, because that's kind of criteria one. Criteria yeah. two being, you know, what is it going to look like around getting prophylaxis into infant? Because we are recommending medications for baby triple therapy for the first four to six weeks, and then um, ideally monotherapy if everything's continuing thereafter. So making sure you're going to be able to kind of continue to get meds and give baby meds. And then similarly, the frequency of follow-up. This is sort of every one to two months for mom to have a viral load done. That's not common for most adults that are right. otherwise undetectable. And same for baby, testing and blood work on baby because we have to make sure there's no toxicity from the ART, but also that there's no transmission that's occurred because again, treatment would definitely differ in that context. Yeah. Um, and then the other element of you know, setting a woman up for success. So a lactation consultant is probably critical to make sure that uh, mom knows how to, how to ensure that she's making good and adequate milk. Baby has a good suck and swallow, a good latch, nipple health, reduction of mastitis risk. All of those elements are so important to, again, set this pathway up for success. So I think those are really critical counseling elements that need to be clear yeah for both pathways that might evolve and then what triggers might merit a reassessment of the plan. So, you know, if we are running into issues of a blip in mom's viral load or running into, you know, serious mastitis, serious infection in baby that is now putting that risk number we may have talked about earlier mm. into sort of a risk level that maybe is not in keeping with the goals of care from both the mom and the provider's perspective, but really laying clear what this is going to look like and what might be pivots in our pathway around when we may have to sort of consider stopping breastfeeding or, you know, pumping and dumping for a period until we can get things back in control. There are strategies we can talk about, but I yeah. think everybody kind of needs to be going into this eyes wide open with clarity. And yeah. then can we feel that we really empowered a woman to make a fully informed decision and make the choice that's best for her, her family and safest for sort of long-term outcomes for baby as well. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point because even in my own practice, we see, you know, sometimes we'll get a consult or we'll get involved very late in the course. And at that point, it's, you know, the baby's delivered, um, the first feeding has to occur very quickly. And so I, we are trying, at least in our province to, you know, educate our prenatal care providers to say, it's okay to actually do a prenatal counseling session with an infectious disease physician there. Um, and we're more than happy to help with kind of talking about this risk of transmission and really making the moms aware because I think there's sometimes lack of knowledge on that side because, you know, it'll be my friend also did this, but not knowing the extent of, you know, what the involvement is. And I think that is always risk first benefit for every case. And that's kind of why it's really important to really have this already in place and set up and really understand 
what are the reasons that mom is motivated to do this? And I think that always helps with compliance, right? And so, and then making sure that we're there along the way for the support. So having lactation there, having all of, you know, mom knowing when she can or cannot, like when is the pump to pump and dump protocol have to kick in? (laughs) Um, Because I think these are the challenges that we're facing in our communities. And so I think really involving them early on. And like you said, when it's the right time is probably difficult to tell, but once they start engaging, I think once you're entering your third trimester, I think it's important to start having these discussions with the moms. Yeah. You brought up a really good point around understanding the rationale or the the motivations for it, because sometimes those motivations, you can actually potentially provide other strategies or solutions to get around it and fear of involuntary disclosure and sort of extended family or cultural pressures that if I don't breastfeed, then everyone's going to know and sort of ways or or language you can provide that empowers a mom to sort of respond to family members as to, yep, this is why I'm formula feeding and it has nothing uh, overly uh, related to HIV. And I I think, you know, women may not be aware of sort of other strategies that we've used in the past. Something like, well, I required a lot of pain control after my delivery and that amount of pain control was too high and and too risky to breastfeed through. And so unfortunately I was unable to breastfeed. Like there are ways sometimes that you, you can provide if you understand the reasoning why. And I think that's so critical to this conversation. And you also raised a really good point about making sure the right support people are there. You know, if a partner is heavily influential on a decision around this, they should be in the room, right? Of course, based on what the woman is telling you she's feeling comfortable and safe with, I think that's so important because it it is a a family-centered approach, this decision, and and we really should be sort of adopting that. And I think really understanding the the risks with mixed feeding is important too, because I think a lot of us in the initial days, your milk isn't in, um, so they may get a little bit nervous in terms of, if, is my baby getting enough feeding at this point? And so in a normal situation, adding formula, if they're not gaining weight, is more realistic of an approach. But in this context, that's not really the approach. And so kind of guiding and counseling around and really remembering that it's mom and baby that we're worried about, right? And so we need to make sure that mom you know, feels comfortable. If we do have to start weaning, we have medications, we can support her through the pain, etc. of, you know, breast engorgement, that type of thing. And then really understanding that there are risks for the baby if there is mixed feeding. And so kind of emphasizing that. Mm-hmm. That's what I've noticed in my practice too. So in terms of uh, most of our providers, they're they're probably familiar, listeners are more, more familiar with like understanding the criteria. So we're really talking about low risk, you know, undetectable viral load, the motivation to continue to stay on antiretrovirals for the mom is really important because you really have to stay undetectable throughout and then ensuring that they understand that there's blood work and antiretrovirals involved. Are there any other criteria that should be met for women or for clinicians to kind of say that, yes, breastfeeding, I can go ahead and have these discussions? I think you kind of hit the the nail on the head there around the adherence, the ability to kind of have both the monitoring for both mom and baby throughout. And then, you know, in some situations, add this as sort of a supplement to the guidelines is for some women, you might want to have them sort of sign this agreement. And it's not necessarily because, you know, medical legal from a provider side, it's for the the woman to really kind of be clear on what this is going to look like. And also because there may be situations where 
if a mom ends up in a walk-in clinic or in, in another situation and then somehow breastfeeding gets disclosed, having a document like that can actually empower mom to say, no, my HIV care providers are well aware of this and right. we've agreed on X, Y, and Z principles and therefore there's no need for like CAS referral or legal implications, which I think is another huge concern that the community has around what is the potential risk of, of going down this pathway. And so I think that's another, so it's not a prerequisite, but mm -hmm. it's something that may empower sort of both parties to really feel like the depth and the understanding of the things that have been chatted about are very clear to everyone involved kind of thing. Right. So that's something that may be an added consideration yeah. that, that can be helpful for both, both sides. Yeah. And I think it also prevents confusion because I've had sometimes uh, providers call and say, you know, I thought it was not recommended. And so in this case, why is it? And, and so I think Obviously, as we become more and more educated in this area and really understanding this and, and having these consensus recommendations, I think is one of the first steps to, you know, really raising this question and bringing it up. Because I know when I did my training in infectious disease, we didn't have a lot of recommendations or official expert opinion on this. So I think this document has definitely changed and helped my practice. So I think it is probably the same for many of our listeners out there. So going back to the consensus recommendations, we talked a little bit about after the counseling part, so with families um, and what the recommendations are in terms of like what this really means for their infant. We talked about blood work. I think an important change for me in the recommendations was the preferred ARTs that were recommended for the infant uh, versus kind of the, the alternative recommendations. And so for our listeners, because we're really used to having triple therapy, the entire duration of breastfeeding, whether that's three months plus. And so some of the recommendations, you did mention that the risk of transmission in that first four to six weeks weekly is a little bit greater. So coming from that standpoint, I can see why the recommendations were made, but maybe we can touch on what is the preferred recommendation for the ARTs for the infant. So what we had kind of landed on, honestly, this was not easy decisions to sort of land. There was a lot of discussion right. that went back and forth on this. In the end, uh, it's interesting to sort of hear your perspective around like, well, I thought it would be triple all the way. And, you know, there were definitely folks on that side of the table. Mm -hmm. We actually are considered the most conservative among the, you know, right. um, UK, US <laughs> and Canadian guidelines with where we landed. But where we did land, which was your question, is um, combination therapies, adopting lamivudine, nevirapine for the first sort of four to six weeks. And then, as you alluded to, that being sort of the highest risk and then followed by monotherapy with nevirapine until four weeks after cessation of breastfeeding. There are definitely alternatives and obviously you want to consider baseline resistance known in mom um, to factor into some of your decision making. We did land that way simply because we did want to have, you know, some degree of prophylaxis for the infant, which is different than the US and the UK for sure. But did the risk merit triple the entire duration and the potential risk of toxicity right. and also the reality that there may be situations where risk could kind of go up transiently like we talked about and you know having that sort of safety valve of going back to triple in those scenarios was yeah. sort of the, that medium ground we felt that was reasonable based on what we understand today that said i think this needs to be reevaluated as we get more data and this is sort of what we landed and 
it's not perfect. And one can definitely consider the alternate regimens that we propose, which as you alluded to is triple the entire duration. But I think that we did want to leave some leeway for a provider to consider individual patient risk factors and factor that in, of course. And for somebody who's, who practices this, I feel like one of the rate limiting steps of having to stop breastfeeding is actually side effects from some of these medications. And so, you know, really seeing that the consensus recommendations were kind of aiming towards reducing the number of medications after kind of that highest risk portion of, of weeks, I think it was, it's, it's nice to see that, that we have an option now you know, not saying that any of the other medications continue like nevirapine also has some risks, but we see less like bone marrow suppression, which is one of probably in my practice, probably the number one reason I've had to stop, you know, and, and have mom wean breastfeeding and, and, and it's disheartening because they put in all this work and this effort and, you know, they agreed to having the infant have such frequent blood work, but then you get to this physiological nadir, which gets exaggerated. <laughs> and then, and then the problem becomes, you just have to come off because you can't sustain, you know, the bone marrow at that point. Mm-hmm. So is that something, you know, was that weighed in when, when the recommendations were put together? That was definitely a huge factor because, you know, what, what really benefit are we achieving with the triple at that phase compared Mm -hmm. to sort of the risk of toxicity and so I think that played in significantly in terms of a rationale for are we attaining that much more risk reduction by the addition of triple for the entire duration and so that was a huge factor as to sort of why we felt that the risk reduction was adequate enough with nivirapine alone. And then I think we've answered some questions around, you know, when to obviously pump and dump and and when, when should we discontinue breastfeeding? So I think where can we find these consensus recommendations? Because I think having this document available is super important. And then what other resources can we provide either families or providers, right, to give to families? So um, we definitely welcome readers to check out um, our published guidelines, which are in JAMI. You can, I think, do a quick Google search. That's how I typically stumble yeah, on them again. That's I... <laughs> um, yeah, so just like Canadian uh, CPARG, Infant Feeding, HIV Guidelines, JAMI, you can search that up. And then similarly, um, just to sort of see how other you know models exist, there's definitely the WHO, the BIVA, and the DHHS guidelines for the provider sort of space. And then in terms of patient populations, the OHDN and Katie are actually currently working on a more specific resources. But in terms of what currently exists, BIVA has a nice little leaflet. It's called Healthy Mums, Healthy Tums that you can search up. And then similarly, Katie has a um, prevention page on pregnancy and infant feeding. There is a consensus statement out of the WELL project that speaks to some of this risk. And and that's another another way to sort of look at this conversation as well. But I I also would urge providers to take a look at the mothering study as well, which is is now, I think, over a decade old. But I think it's still relevant to these conversations. And I think... Only when you start to understand the complexity of this issue, do you start to see why this investment in time and energy around this is so important. And and I think the mothering study is sort of a seminal study that really hit the nail on the head of like how important of an issue this is for women and therefore as providers, how much we need to start really speaking to this issue in, in more clear terms. No, that's fair. And I know that our listeners are probably asking, you know, so how do we kind of, what's the future of 
feeding in the in, in this context, in the HIV context, and and is there something that providers can help with in terms of like surveillance, right? Because if there's ongoing, like, could we submit cases somewhere? Is there is is this in the works? Great question. Um, so there there was a case series that in the Canadian data that was sort of pulled together and published. We also contributed to a U.S. paper that combined both the Canadian and U.S. experience around breastfeeding. But you're, you're right. I think what we really need, and actually that's the last recommendation of our guideline, is a true sort of fulsome data registry. I'm really cognizant of the word surveillance um, in this context, but we're really sort of trying to get to that point where we'll have a fulsome registry where we can really collect these essential data points that can help us inform, you know, what is or isn't, you know, the best practice here, because what we have is expert right. opinion. What we need is real world experience, because a lot, as we mentioned, those RCTs, not in our context, not necessarily generalizable to us, but, you know, we're all getting more experience with this. And from that, we should all be learning. And so we're working towards that. We're asking PI for that funding. But as HIV care providers, if you're asked to submit this data into a registry, we know it's extra work, but we really think these data points are so yeah. integral to collect. So we, we ask that that you support any initiative if you're asked to collect some of that data for this important evidence that's in evolution. There are other elements that um, I think still are needed in terms of the breast milk science. Like we need yeah. to know, you know, what is those risk in the first few weeks? Is there a difference between four milk, high milk, colostrum? What ARTs are truly getting through breast milk and what aren't? What is yeah. the risk of resistance because of ART exposures to the babies? So I think real Canadian or at least high resource setting data on this breast milk science needs to be done. And I think a lot of different groups are looking into that. I think that's such important work that, that hopefully will get funded and supported yeah. by, by clinicians like yourselves and in enrolling patients to these studies. And I think that there's more to come. I think that knowledge translation, how are we communicating this to our patients? Yeah. How, how are ASOs able to leverage and use this data in terms of really packaging this in a way that's that's meaningful to the community and helpful to the community. We need to have anti-racist and anti-oppressive approaches to this conversation. There's very different cultural nuances that need right. to be considered and much, yeah. much important social science work that needs to happen in that realm. And I think, you know, we're all looking to the broadly neutralizing antibody question and whether that will right. really make breastfeeding sort of simpler and easier. So I think there's lots of exciting data to come. And I think as HIV care providers staying up to date on this and and bringing forward ideas and contributing to this work is going to be so important. No, a fantastic point. Yeah. And I think, you know, and this is just the start of we've seen a lot of changes in, you know, HIV care, especially in the pediatric world um, over the last few years, especially since I've been practicing. And so I think you make a really good point in like staying up to date. And one of our reasons for this podcast is to help our listeners do that. And so we are so thankful that we had someone come from an expert opinion side of things and, and really helped us understand some of the consensus recommendations. And I think a lot of us, you know, don't have a lot of information in this field. And, and so it, it makes that fear and we kind of stay within our boundaries to say, you know, this is this is the information that's been provided to us. And this is how, you know, we've done it in the past, but remembering that there are newer advances and that we should be keeping up to date with what the rest of the world and then the rest of our country is doing as well. So one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you onto the podcast and, and so I guess for kind of last minute things for our uh, listeners, is there anything that uh, a key message that you wanted to provide to our listeners who, who consist of 
HIV providers, pharmacists, those that probably residents, medical students, really part of the learning community. I think what I've learned so much in doing this work has been we need to be listening to the community because they're the ones, their voices are are asking these questions before we even think about them, right? And I think even in our clinical encounters, there needs to be a lot more listening and a lot less talking. And I, I feel like I talked through like a lot of things here, but you brought up that really important point of like, what are the motivations that are driving these decisions? Because until we understand what the community is facing and mm-hmm. what their you know concerns are, are we going to be able to sort of address or meet those those needs in, in terms of the, the clinical care component? So I guess that's sort of a learning yeah. that I've I've continued to, to sort of do throughout this. And I think it's that real engagement and partnership that's going to move this issue forward and, and provide the best outcomes for both mom and baby. And I think that's what everyone's goal is at the end of this. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Khan. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And uh, hopefully we can have some future episodes if uh, there's any other updates to the recommendations. Thank you for the initial introduction to the current consensus recommendations. And I'm sure our listeners are um, very pleased to hear that there is some guidance out there and how to access it and some resources. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Great. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Pierwall and Dr. Khan, for this interesting discussion. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com and follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at CA Breakpoint. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint. <laughs>